0: This morning, we're going to continue through our series that we started last week around how we're sent together, that God has called us and he's sending us. I'm going to start by talking about how I'm, I'm a really good dad. So there it is. Yeah. I'm pretty confident in it. I put up Christmas lights every year. The very first time I did this here in this city, at our new house, I, I pulled out our ladder, and I went all the way up to the top that it could, and I was like hanging up there, and I knew that my knees began to shake, and I was really terrified as I kept putting the next little light up, the next little light up, until one of my kids came out and said, "'Dad, doesn't that ladder go higher?' And I remembered that I had bought an extendable ladder, and it could go up to two stories up in the air, and I got down and I realized I was terrified for no reason because what I was equipped with, what I was given, what I bought, was more than enough. So then I finally opened it up and was basically looking down on my roof, which I felt also still scared of heights, but no longer standing on that really top thing. I think this is what life normally feels like for much of us. Our knees shake through it, things happen. We hear news, even just this past week, I was overly stressed just about my own dog and his health, which is pretty pathetic. I mean, it's, he's a cute dog, but we go through life stressed and overwhelmed. Uh, not because the Jesus that we believe in is too small and doesn't apply to all of the challenges and all the issues that come to us, but because our expectations of what he can do and what he can transform are far too small. That's true for us as individuals. We think, man, Jesus is really good for helping me be a better person on the inside. But when the world is chaotic, Jesus has no play there. Or we might think Jesus is really good at renewing my mind and helping me think straight. And I know truth and that whatnot. But then when it comes to our own emotional health or ways that we relate to other people, Jesus can't extend that far either. But the gospel is the good news about how Jesus has defeated sin and death and evil through his own life, death and resurrection. And he is making all things new, even us. Amen is right. And what we're going to talk about for the next several weeks is How Jesus truly changes everything. I have this cool picture that I made up. I call this the the gospel prism. And it's about how Jesus, the power of him in the center really does change everything. He changes what we believe. And I don't mean that simply he changes our our doctrines so we get all tight and neat, though it's certainly Jesus does that, but he changes our, our assumptions about the world. that that no one would rescue, no one would care for us, and Jesus changes that for us. Jesus also changes who we are. The gospel is deeply personal, not simply my Jesus and your Jesus, they're all different Jesuses, but no, like Jesus is personal. The transformation affects us, what we long for, who we are, our deepest desires, our deepest wounds. Then lastly, Jesus also changes the world that we live in. Uh, His renewal, his power, his strength extends far beyond just us and just our brains and just our hearts. He actually physically changes the cosmos. He has a purpose of justice and renewal everywhere. And so today we're going to talk about that first thing, how Jesus changes what we believe from the gospel of Mark, Mark chapter one, verses 14 and 15. This is what it says. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. One of the things I love about the gospels. Each of them, they're all, you know, special and unique, but what they all share is that they assume that everyone understands and everyone knows the rumbling hum beneath all of humanity. That no one needs to be convinced of this thing that we all experience and know, the reality of sin and brokenness of humanity. No one gets to the point where they, you know, back then unroll the scroll or for us who comes to this text, they don't have to convince anyone that this world is not as it should be. They don't spend any time doing that. They don't spend chapter upon chapter or page after page saying, hey, just so you know, you might not know this, but humans are pretty messy up. You might not know this, but the world doesn't work as it should be. They don't do that at all. G.K. Chesterton famously says, this doctrine, this doctrine of sin and brokenness, does not have to be debated. We all know it. We just go outside and interact with it at any moment. Uh, it's one of the beauties about meeting here. We just have to walk outside and we can say, man, overflowing dumpsters is not the way the world should be, right? Amen. It's like what, Our own city's poet, Kendrick Lamar says, he says, every day I try to escape the realities of this world. And the song in which he says that, he's describing just how he pursues and tries to find some sort of distraction that would take away the reality that the world is broken. And it's not just Crenshaw or Compton, it's all of us everywhere in the world. I think we start life out optimistically, you know, life is going to be good. Moses right there, life is good for him. He thinks it's going to go great. Yay, baby. Until life isn't. And then we think, man, someone's going to come along and fix this. Someone's going to fix me. And then nobody does. And then we think, well, if they're not going to do it, maybe I will. Maybe I can fix this. And we try a bunch of different things, and it doesn't work out. And then we go back to the same cycle. Well, it's somebody else's problem, and they're going to come, and they're going to rescue, and they're going to restore. Something somewhere can do that. And then we kind of sink into this belief of, well, nobody's coming, and nobody's going to come and rescue us. That's the baseline belief. That is the human condition. No matter where you live or what culture you grew up in, eventually everyone comes to this baseline thought that no one will come and rescue this world, which is why we pour our lives and ourselves into either making ourselves significant or comfortable or secure because we don't think anyone else is going to do it for us. We're like children who are born into a refugee camp in a nation that doesn't put them there at all. And that that child would feel bound and then they would assume there's never going to be home. There's never going to be that moment. There's never going to be someone who comes and frees us and no one actually can anyway. It's like our other much better poet Maya Angelou tells us, she writes this. She says, the caged bird sings with fearful trill of things unknown, but longed for still. And his tune is heard on distant hill the caged bird sings for freedom. We are caged. We're wounded. We're victim. We're victimizer. That is our beliefs. The story of Jesus's neighborhood, this Galilee area, was very similar. They, had, they felt like they had a pretty special story. I think they did too. Their story is that the whole world was created as a garden of thriving and beauty and God walked with them and talked with them and they had everything that they needed. These first humans felt complete comfort and bliss and joy as they did the work that they were supposed to do, as they did it all in this perfect relationship with each other and with God. And then their, their story, the story that they believed is that, that they chose on themselves that what if we would, could go outside of the bounds of just God and be God ourselves, and we could decide what's right and what's wrong, who's in, who's out, uh, who is right, who is wrong. What if we can make this world even better than it already is? Because after all, they thought God is withholding something from us. Life could never be this good. And that started the history of Jesus's neighborhood in which they believed that God had chosen a few people, a family that would bless the entire world. Abraham and Sarah, this great couple, through them and through their children's children's children, the whole world would experience blessing. And that word blessing is really the idea of the world being made right and new again but they failed at it over and over and over again. They kept trying, but they wouldn't succeed. Sometimes they wouldn't try at all, right? And then they became banished, they were exiles, they were enslaved, they were put all over the world. And in that moment, prophets began to say, God is going to send a king who will come and will rescue. God is going to send a servant and a savior, and he's going to come and he's going to deal with everything that we've messed up, everything that we long for, and then he's going to make the world new. That was about 500 years before Jesus enters this story, before the beginning of our text today. And by the time Jesus arrived, there had been many supposed rescuing kings who did none of that. And so Jesus' time, as as these words are written, the same hum is true for them that's true for us. No one is going to come. No one is going to rescue. The reason I say all that is because we miss these four words as just the bedrock foundation of all good news ever. These four words are, Jesus came into Galilee. That feels like filler words. I know you might think those four words are not special words. They're not like Jesus loves the world so much. They're not like there's better four words, right? No, this is powerfully important because what it means is that never again can anyone live underneath the assumption that no one is coming. Jesus's name itself, my kids and I, we had this really long, complicated conversation where they asked if they could stop over and over again. Like, can we talk about something else? But we talked for a long time about just the meaning of this name, Jesus. That his name means the Lord saves many sinners. His name means that. And so these four words means that the Lord will save has arrived and come in in flesh and blood to a place, to a physical place, into this world. There's no child anywhere who has to believe no one will come and rescue me from this pit. No old person ever has to lie there in agony as they look on death and say, no one ever came for me. No person struggling with their careers or what they're going to do within the industry, or if they can financially sustain themselves in the city ever has to wonder if anyone will come and rescue them. That's what those four words mean. And that Jesus didn't just come and say, hey, I'm here let me do some magic tricks for you. He came proclaiming good news. Good news about God. Not good news about me and you. Not good news about uh, elections or good news about wars that have been won. Not good news about a sale that's happening that we could all get in on. He comes talking about good news about God. Good news that that for us in our existence, and a lot of us have these functional beliefs where it's like, yeah, God's good. He's up there somewhere. What he's saying is I have good news about the very character and the very nature, the very motivation of God. So when we talk about the gospel, which we do a lot here, what we're talking about is is a message and a declaration and a truth about the reality of the creator of the world. And this is what Jesus says that it is. He says, the time has come. Or in other translations, the time is fulfilled. Or if you want to get really dorky, like in the Greek, it's like, the time is complete. There is no more waiting, there's no more longing. The story that Jesus' people had believed as they should, that story has reached the moment in which the king has arrived, in which renewal is going to happen, where, where captives will be set free. That time has come. The time of evil and darkness and sin, that time is over. The new time is here and that new time is about restoration and love and grace and mercy filling all things. The time is fulfilled. And then he says, the kingdom of God has come near or the kingdom of God has reached out its hand to you. The kingdom of God is so close that you and I could touch it. Getting into the reality of the incarnation. Some of us could say, well, the kingdom is this really beautiful idea. There's a lot of parables about it. But what Jesus is saying here is this isn't a parable or a metaphor. He himself is the rule and the reign of God. In Jesus, God gets exactly what he wants. In Jesus, the world is everything as he intended, everything that he created, everything he longed for. In Jesus, the kingdom has rested. And when it says the kingdom has come close or come near, it means that God has interrupted human history forever, but not just generically, yours too. That hanging over your life is this truth of not a nameless, fameless child or person that never has to believe something else. But for you specifically, the hand of God has reached out and is so close to you that you could touch it. That the offering to you is so close, so readily that you could just reach out and have for yourself a life free from sin, death, and evil. That's what's being offered to you. And the other gospels, they talk about how Jesus came to bring life and to bring it abundantly. That's what Jesus is saying here too. And this is earth-shattering news. It's front page, future reshaping news. It means that God came to rescue. So you and I are safe. God defeated sin and evil and death. That means we are free. God took on pain and suffering. We are healed. God is victorious in life as he walks out of the tomb. You and I, we are alive in Jesus. God loves us, he came to rescue us. We belong and we are loved. I know that can feel trite or simple. But how much of our lives are built on us, not believing that the creator of the heavens and the earth, the one who knit us and created us in our mothers actually loves us as us. And that's the news that changes everything. And the response that Jesus says for this, that we should have is repentance and belief. He says, Repent and believe this good news. Respond to the stretched out arm of the Savior who stands before you. Change what you believe about who you are, about God, about the world. See your world transformed by His presence in it. Trust in Him. That's the response time fulfilled, kingdom of God at hand, the good news about God, it requires two simultaneous responses from us, repentance and belief. Drop every other hope that you've had, every other scheme that you've believed in that could make you well, and believe in Jesus. Repentance is a word uh, that, you know, we don't use very much, right? Uh... We use it sometimes in churchy stuff, but it's kind of weird. We like to use it more generically, like those people over there should repent, maybe, but not for us. That seems too big of a word, right? But the reality is what repentance means is just to change your minds and your actions. Generation after generation, year to year, day to day, people practice repentance all the time. We look into the world and we see new things. We observe things. We see things are breaking and we look for a new version of how to get through life without it breaking. Uh, Repentance is changing your mind and life about what is best, about who is best, about where salvation could come from. That's what repentance is. In other words, repentance is the practice of altering your hope. That's what repentance is. And we do this all the time. You know, Dr. Fauci says, hey, we don't need to wear masks. And we say, okay, cool. I'm not gonna wear a mask. And then he says, actually, you need to wear a mask. And we all bought masks. I mean, Kristen made us some really awesome ones. And we all like became experts in how to make a mask. Why? Because we repented. We changed our mind and our hopes and our longings about how we could be safe. And then they said for a little second, hey, you don't have to wear a mask anymore. We took it off. I remember walking through a grocery store and it's like, yeah, it's freedom. Let freedom ring. These people are saying we don't have to wear a mask anymore. This is so cool. And then they said, we practiced repentance when we took them off. We're like, I'm changing my mind about what makes me safe. And then they said, actually, you need to put your mask on again. And look at all of us. We've repented. We've said, okay. That's what repentance is. You're in a relationship and you're dating and you're longing to like, and this, you think that this guy or this girl is awesome until you see a few things in which they're clearly not awesome and you dump that person. That's repentance. You thought, I could, you know, I could love this person. And then all of a sudden you're like, no, I can't. You changed your life. Or you put a bunch of money and you take on a lot of debt and you go to school for a career that you think is going to bring fulfillment. You do all the networking required. You begin to go up in your career. And then you look around and you say, I actually do not find this fulfilling or good at all. This isn't healthy for me. This isn't good for me. And you change careers. Why did you do that? Repentance. Period. That's it. And while all these moments of repentance fill our lives, what Jesus is describing is uniquely comprehensive. He doesn't offer a change of our nutrition and our habits. He's he's offering a comprehensive, complete, holistic change of what we hope for. You know, we look around and we typically think that our social, personal, and spiritual problems are so numerous and they're so complex and they're so deep that it would require a whole bunch of different, complex, transformative things to happen, right? It's like, well, i got to change my diet, and i got to work out, and i got to wear a mask, and I've got to make sure that I do a meditation thing. I also got to make sure that the, all these people vote a certain way, and I've also got to make sure that my company changes. Like, that's how we solve things, right? It takes a whole bunch of different things to work out good. What Jesus is saying here is very different. He's saying that he alone is the one hope for every ill, every evil, every broken thing. That he is the one way towards healing and transformation. And that is repentance. And then he says, believe Put your confidence and your trust in this message about who God is. And I wonder how much uh, we believe in the reality of Jesus. I, ho- I wonder how much trust we put in the power of Him to make all things new. Not the idea of Jesus, the idea of Jesus is common to everywhere. We all We all agree with it. The other day, Nor and I watched a soccer game in which a guy's name was Jesus. It's like, we all know Jesus exists. And I'm not talking about the philosophy of Jesus. I think a lot of us love the philosophy and the teaching and the mentality of Jesus. I mean, even, you know, you can basically go through the winners of the Nobel Peace Prize and trace all of the things that they did to the teachings of Jesus. Could call it simply the prize of those people who did what Jesus did. So we're not, it's not so much that that we don't have belief in, or even the historicity of Jesus, the reality that he was a person, because just basically to believe that Jesus wasn't a real person is, is kind of crazy. I mean, that's like, we all think that other people have conspiracy theories. That would be one like Jesus didn't exist. We all, we're down with Jesus belief that he existed. I think for us too, we might have a lot of belief in the pragmatics of Jesus. If we just do the things that Jesus does, if we just apply them to ourselves, if we just work really hard at being more and more like Jesus, that's the best way to go. I think we're a church full of people who believes Jesus is pragmatically good. But I think this is perhaps our biggest struggle today is to believe in him and his power, to believe not in an idea of Jesus, but a Jesus who walked out of the grave not to believe in a God who's loving, but a God who became flesh and blood and walked among us, who came into Galilee, who comes into Los Angeles, who comes into your life. That belief we're not so sure about because we're happy to define the Christian life in accomplishments or objectives or to-dos or little things that we can alter. We're happy to talk about Christianity and Christianity as just this, a set of beliefs, or a set of ideas, a set of concepts that we hold to or that we think. Where I grew up, the word that you would use to describe yourself as a Christian was the word believer. Did anyone else grow up in a place like that? What does it mean to be a Christian? You would say, I believe. Why aren't we seeing souls transformed or a world made right? Why don't we see massive generosity and and an exodus from this building, our missional communities, expecting the world to be different through Jesus? Because we don't believe he can. Why don't we walk into some sort of radical love or zeal for our neighbor with this confidence that what I have to say and what I have to give this person is abundant, full life that makes them new. Why don't we do that? Because we don't believe that he can. I believe most of us, uh, struggle to believe that he is who he says he is and he's done what he says he's done that our savior is over every aspect of life. And so when Jesus says, repent and believe, it's not just this simple turn of phrase for him. He's inviting us into the greatest challenge, the greatest effort, the greatest endeavor of our lives to take hold and to trust and have confidence that he is who he says he is. To follow Jesus, we must learn to believe him completely with every longing, inside every grief, and within every dream. Miroslav Volf, uh, the Croatian that I mentioned last week, who is still alive, so it's good. I've, I've quoted several people who are still alive today, so I get some points later from someone. But he says this, he says, the main temptation is not to reject God outright, but to embrace God as something secondary. The main temptation for us as a church is not to like suddenly gather together and be like, yeah, we don't believe in God anymore, but it's fun to sing some songs. Like there are churches like, like, like you can go to an atheist worship service where they do all of this, but they don't believe in God. That's not our big, tempt- like we're not about to fall into that. But our big temptation truly is to make God something secondary to make God a secondary hope, to make the truth of Jesus, something that is added on to something that we really think could change the world. I once had this incredibly kind person join our community uh, in Portland who who came in when we had coffee and we were talking about like why he was there. And he said, you know, I don't really believe this stuff anymore, but I want to continue spiritual practices. Uh, This guy had, he'd gone to seminary where you learn everything you can about God. Uh, He worked for a nonprofit. He cared for homeless people. But then after years of kind of exploring a spiritual life, he said, you know what? I don't believe this stuff anymore. And I try to do it on my own, but I would love to be part of a community where I could do the practices of God without actually believing in him. And at first that was a real discouraging thing for me. Like, why are you joining my church? right? Until I realized that he was just being honest, and most of us are not. I think the the great temptation for our church is to practice the activity of belief without the substance of belief. To go through life doing the stuff, but not actually believing that he can break chains. Uh, This is a a series where we talk about who we are as a people and what we want to be about. We aspire to be a church that believes radical. It sounds so simple, but family, but church, it isn't. It is power that we would believe Jesus at his word and at the reality of him. A people of belief would expect to have chains broken. People of belief would expect miracles to happen within our hearts and within our bodies. A people of belief would filter everything through the lens of what has Jesus done? Who has he loved? How has he loved? How does he rescue? How will he rescue? That's how we would filter everything if we were a people who believed. A people of belief expects that our greatest good will be found in him and him alone. A people of belief cry out to God in distress, God be with me. A people of belief encourages one another to remain steadfast in our hope, to remain in hope. Just imagine in a world that's so cynical and a world of so much misinformation of gaslighting, which I think I understand what that means eventually, but I might've been gaslit into that definition But in a world of cynicism, misinformation, judgment, distraction, what if we were a people who stood against the wind, who stood against the current, not the current of like all the cultural things, but just stood against the current and say, we actually believe in something that could change the world. That would be it. Can you imagine the remarkable power of a group of believers that called themselves a church who said, God saves, and I believe it to be true. How do you step into that? Like, how do we go from, I don't believe, and maybe we can be honest like that dude and go into, okay, now I do believe Uh, Ernest Hemingway. I know Jess doesn't like him, but Ernest Hemingway wrote this and he wasn't writing for us, but he didn't know it. You know, God works through the pen of weird people, but he says this, he says the best way to know if you can trust a man is to trust him. How do you go from, I don't know if I can believe to I can believe. And just for the record, Jesus is very believable. The the power of his transformation is very believable, seen in signs and evidence and humans that are transformed today, but also for 2000 years. It's very believable that he walked out of that grave, someone who has risen to life. All of that is so believable. How do you get into that kind of belief? The best way, Hemingway is right, to know if you can trust a person is to start trusting a person. And he was describing someone in a foxhole fighting a battle and fighting a war. How do you know if you can trust that person next to you? You have to get in the hole and fight alongside them and see that they're a person you can put confidence in. So that is a big invitation for you today. Can you take hold and simply step into, I will trust Jesus and I'm gonna start and then I'll see, is he really trustworthy? The gospel changes what we believe about life and death and rescue. It's good news that sin and death and evil is defeated, but also that life is being born and coming again. That news demands a change of what we believe. You cannot hold a belief that no one is coming while God has already come to rescue you. Believe and trust in Jesus. The Lord is the savior of sinners. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray for us as a church to be people who believe, who uh, have a deep confidence that you saved the world. Help us to respond to the, the good news that the time of Evil and darkness is over and the time of your kingdom is here. Help us take hold of that today, even as we respond now. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.